Let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. The brothers that just read Scripture to us have done much of the work. If you paid attention to those words, Psalm 73, Psalm 37, the last eight verses or so, they describe a man frustrated, perplexed, confused about the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous. And we were taught the lesson not to look at those short-term circumstances, but to have a longer-term perspective in those places. Now, Solomon does not give us expressly the information and the instruction to have a long-term perspective. He gives us some suggestions on dealing with that dilemma of looking at God's providence in a different way. And we want to see that in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Beginning at chapter 8 and verse 9, we have, we're up to our 38th lesson in the book of Ecclesiastes. I hope that you can see that when we take a few of these verses at a time and see their connection to each other, it helps give us bite-sized morsels of the wisdom that Solomon is teaching. If you just blow through a chapter and it's got four, five, six lessons in it, they all, listen, maybe they don't for you. I'm going to tell you about me. They They all run together and I'm saying, yeah. I hear some of those words, but how does it all fit together? But when we get bite side, bless the Lord. There's wisdom here. Do you know what we've covered so far? Get wisdom in verse 1. Obey the government 2 through 5. 6 through 8, get wisdom so that you can understand the times and not be frustrated, perplexed, and grieved by them, but use them to your advantage. Verses 9 through 11, evil rulers are going to have their comeuppance. They're going to be tossed in the ground and no one's going to remember them. So put your trust in the Lord. But now we come to verse 12. We come to verse 12. And the lesson here is wisdom in light of God's providence. How should we respond to God's providence? And God's providence is, why do things happen to everybody? Sickness, disease, storms, parents, opportunities, losing a job. All the thousands of things that happen to people, why do they happen the way they do? Why does it appear sometimes sinners are being blessed and other times the righteous are being punished? You've been taught the four reasons why bad things happen to Christians. The four big categories that the Bible teaches. For the glory of God, the blind man in John chapter 9. The chastening of our sins, Hebrews chapter 12. The Lord will chasten those that he loves. For the trial and perfection of our faith, James chapter 1. And the life of Job. And the natural consequence of foolishness that the whole Bible teaches. If you want to make foolish choices, you'll bear the consequences of them. So we see that God does do things like that. But Solomon is going to give us a philosophical approach. And it starts in 12. And it goes through 15. That's a lesson. Then 16 and 17 are a lesson. Then 9, 1 through 3 are a lesson. But they're all about this providence of God. And we're going to cover them all. And we're going to end it in a proper time. Because they're all related. And I want to get to chapter 9, verse 1, so bad. And I hope I don't race through 12 through the end of this chapter. But in the light of God's providence, we're given several things to lay hold of. First, fear the Lord. That's right here in 12 and 13, which I read at the end of the previous assembly. Fear the Lord, because the man that fears the Lord, it shall go well with him. And it shall not go well with the man that does not fear the Lord. So we are told that the fear of the Lord is very important for your life to go well. And remember, the purpose of Ecclesiastes and this book of philosophy in the Bible is how to maximize your life on earth under the sun in in natural ways. 
And if you want to be blessed and be comforted and strengthened and be successful, fear the Lord. Because it says that in verse 12. Though a sinner do evil a hundred times, and his days be prolonged, and we've seen that sometimes, yet surely, yet surely, I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before Him. And we've read recently in your hearing, in this church, Psalm 112, Psalm 128, where they both taught us, blessed is the man that feareth the Lord. And it described some of those blessings. Solomon knew that. He was sure of it. So the first thing we want to lay hold of is de- in dealing with the providence of God is let's fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? He's right. right. I'm going to do everything he wants me to do. I'm going to trust his Bible. I'm going to obey his Bible. I'm going to hate everything that he hates. That's what the Bible... I'm, I'm paraphrasing verses. So that's what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is a reverent awe of God so that you want to please Him. You love Him with all of your heart. The last thing you would ever want to do is displease Him. You trust Him. You trust His Word. And you want to keep His Word. That man is going to be blessed. If you put your trust in the Lord and you tell Him you love Him and you walk with Him every day and you hate the sins that He hates and when you do fall and commit a sin, you confess it to Him, you trust His forgiveness and you go on. You fear the Lord. It's going to go well with you. Even though it may appear to us as we look at somebody living around us or we look at someone that's popular on the news and we see them getting away with great wickedness a hundred times. We, we look past that. We say, something's going to happen to that person soon. And then it's going to happen to him when he meets the Lord. Right. And we say, I'm going to fear the Lord. I'm going to fear the Lord. You know, he's going to get to the end and say, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And then he mentions eternity, doesn't he? For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. The last verse, he puts eternity into view very expressly. Verse 13, but it shall not be well with the wicked. Neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he feareth not before God. You think he's prolonging his days in verse 12 because you're looking at it from your perspective. We look at someone that's living wickedly, and if God doesn't strike them dead right then in the spot, I don't understand it. Sometimes Sherry and I have spoken to each other about people that are living wickedly, and they hate, they hate the Lord, and they hate the house of God, and we wonder, why aren't they dead yet? Because in my book, I'm thankful that he's merciful, because I wouldn't be here. I'm thankful that he's merciful. But in my book, they're prolonging their days. But you know what the Lord tells us in the next verse? They're not really prolonging their days because the Lord already has their day picked out. And Psalm 73 and Psalm 37 both told you about that day. It's pretty hard, isn't it? It's pretty harsh. He has set them in what kind of places? Slippery. They're on the slippery slope. What was the text for Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Their foot shall slide in due time. But that due time isn't your time or my time. So we think they're prolonging their days. But there's a due time. Oh, yes. The Lord has the time already laid out for them. Better had it been for that man that he hadn't been born. Is what the Bible says. His days are but a shadow and they're over. Because he feareth not before God. It is not going to go well with him because he does not fear God. 
There is discrimination in the universe. God blesses those that fear God, and He doesn't bless those that don't fear God. You say, but I see those that don't fear God getting blessed. It's so short-term, it doesn't count. They're so dysfunctional, disrupted, troubled in their lives in ways that you can't see, and sometimes you can see. They're divorced, drunk, on drugs, messed up, unhappy, suicidal, twisted, 50 surgical operations for plastic surgery on their nose until it's falling off, and on and on and on we go. Don't tell me that that's happiness. Or success. It shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days. Now here's Solomon looking at it as a vanity. These are things he's seen, we've seen it, we've wondered about it ourselves. There is a vanity which is done upon the earth. It's one of the empty, profitless, confusing things about human life under the sun. There is a vanity which is done upon the earth, that there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. They look like they're getting treated by, like wicked men, though they are indeed just men. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. It's one of the confusing, perplexing things about life in a sinful world. We messed up this world. There was a perfect world. God gave it to us in Eden. Our first parents ruined it. Don't blame God for this situation. Blame your first parents and blame yourself because you've done the same thing your first parents did and your parents did the same thing your first parents did. We've all contributed to this messed up world that we live in under the sun. There's going to be a day when the children of God shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption that they are in and give and delivered into the full liberty of the sons of God. It's coming. Right. Romans chapter 8. Oh, we've preached that one before, and that is sweet to the soul. Amen. But right now it's troubling. It's vain. And it's God's work because He's punishing. He's showing the vanity of life without Him. He's exercising the sons of men so that they can find nothing except to fall on Him in mercy and beg through the fear of the Lord, for Him to have mercy upon them. That's the trouble that He sees. He says that He calls it a vanity. And we're going to see some more of this. But let's get verse 15. Here's cure two. Cure one, what was it? The fear of the Lord. Fear God. Lay hold of God. Delight in Him. My favorite verse since I was a teenager, Psalm 37, 4. Delight thyself also in the Lord. I'm an all or nothing person. I can get pretty enthusiastic. What you don't see is I can get pretty unenthusiastic too, but I'm usually pretty enthusiastic. But the Lord is the greatest thing to be enthused about. Delight thyself also in the Lord. That's the first cure. Lay hold of the Lord. Anything can be going on around you. You can see someone blaspheming God and getting rich. So what? I fear the Lord. I love the Lord. He's going to take care of me. I trust Him. That's first cure is just trust the Lord. Second cure is forget it all and just enjoy life one day at a time by eating, drinking, and being merry, which is this 15th verse. Then I commended mirth. Now, mirth is not being stupid, and it's not a sitcom from Hollywood. Mirth is happiness. Mirth is gladness. Mirth is moderate, modest, Approved pleasure. Mirth is not revelings. Mirth is not banquetings. Mirth is not drunkenness nor gluttony. Mirth is not the lust of your eyes or the lust of your flesh. He is not commending sinful living right here. He is commending 
enjoy life. What he's taught before, what he's going to teach after. Where have we seen the mirth read to us today? And I love our services. I know that sometimes you may sit there, and I wish you didn't. When is all this reading of the Scripture going to end? Are you kidding? What a feast to hear my brethren and companions get up and carefully enunciate and distinctly pronounce the words of the living God. It feeds my soul. I rein myself in. I would jump on... I love saying amen. I rein myself in because 90% of you sound like Presbyterians. There's no sound. The Word of God is so precious. We've had the word mirth read to us. We've had the word great mirth read to us. And it was done in Nehemiah chapter 8 after a preaching service. After a preaching service, they weren't supposed to go home and cry about it. They were to go home and celebrate. Send the, eat the sweet. Eat the fat. Send portions to those that couldn't afford a good meal. Give them a good one. Listen, when the Lord talks about mirth, He don't mean the dollar menu at McDonald's. Right. He doesn't. How do I know that? Deuteronomy chapter 14. He says a 10% of your gross for my mirth. I want you to take 10% of gross and come to the place where I'm worshipped and buy whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. It says that in the Bible. Is that, is that neat? Deuteronomy, I'm picking on you. Deuteronomy 14, 26. What sore thy soul lusteth after? For ox? Oh yeah, filet mignon, ribeye steak, whatever from that ox. Leg of lamb, lamb chops from a lamb, wine and strong drink. And enjoy it there with your family and rejoice before the Lord. Rejoice, eat, drink and be merry. That's the religion of God under the harsh, do it or I'll kill you, Old Testament. I didn't mean, I wasn't disrespectful to God. I'm telling you that Old Testament was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But even the schoolmaster was a wonderful religion that included a great deal of mirth. Every year you had to spend 10% on a vacation. Listen, all your children in here think that you ought to go back into the Old Testament. 10% 10% of gross on a vacation? Where are you going? You taking a Concord to Europe? Isn't that wonderful? It's in the Bible. It's Deuteronomy chapter 14. It's mirth. Then Nehemiah 8 was mirth at a preaching service. David had mirth when he became king and moved the Ark of the Covenant. He bought a good piece of flesh and a loaf of bread and a flagon of wine for everybody in Israel. He said, Supper's on me, all five million of you. That, Hezekiah, did we read it in Second Chronicles chapter 30? Hezekiah popped for a thousand oxen and seven thousand sheep. The princes, the princes saw his largesse and they wanted to outdo him, so they popped for a thousand oxen and ten thousand sheep. Right. If you read the passage. And they, it took them fourteen days to eat it all. And they celebrated with great gladness. And that's under the Old Testament. Right. Do or die. How about the New Testament? We have more to celebrate. We have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament excels the old in every measure. But the religion of God and looking at all the circumstances around us and seeing the providence of God that sometimes it appears He's rewarding the wicked, sometimes it appears He's punishing the righteous, and our brother did an excellent job of pointing out sometimes the prosperity on the wicked is the prosperity of fools. 
And what appears to be punishment on the righteous is actually his loving chastening, proving that they're his children and not the bastards that have the prosperity of fools. Wow. Hebrews chapter 12. Sometimes it's for the glory of God so that a man got to be blind for 20 years. Yes, I meant my words just like I said. He got to be blind for 20 years. He got to make friends with a German shepherd that led him around for 20 years. In John chapter 9, for the glory of God. Would you do that for the glory of God? If God could be glorified by my life by leaving me blind for 20 years, take my sight away. Do we, I hope I mean that. I hope I believe that. Before God, I believe that. But you know what? All he says is he asks us a reasonable service to give your bodies a living sacrifice with your two eyes working. Will you keep your two eyes from looking at things that you shouldn't look at? Ah, that's what he wants from me for the glory of God. I can give him that. But back to 15. Mirth. Mirth is not foolishness. This is not Epicureanism in which they eat, drink, and be merry has no regard for God because he's already set us up by telling us the fear of the Lord comes first. Then this mirth. And when it says, Then I commended mirth because a man hath no better thing under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be merry. He has already put something in front of that eating, drinking, and being merry, and that is the fear of the Lord. After the fear of the Lord, if you fear the Lord, and He's your reason for living, He's the love of your life. After that, while you're here under the sun, with things in front of your eyes, what should you be doing? Enjoying your life. One day at a time. And if you wait... If you think, I'll enjoy my life more when I have a different job, better job, we have kids, we have a bigger house, we have more car, don't do that. It may never come. Enjoy life today. And you know what? We live in a nation that allows us that privilege more than any other nation has ever had. One day at a time, we can enjoy life. Are you still enjoying it after one year, son? You better be. I believe you are. Yeah, one year already. You know, two years back there. The next chapter is going to tell us it includes your wife. The squeeze at night. Eat, drink, squeeze at night, and be merry. Food don't cut it all together. But that Solomon knows he's going to write you that in chapter 9, so he just says eat, drink in chapter 8. Everybody knows that, don't you? You need the eat and drink so that you can have the strength to do the squeeze. Then I'm not being foolish. That's the Word of God. You wait till I get to chapter 9. If you're blushing now, don't come next Sunday. Then I commended mirth. I'm sorry to read commentaries that say, here he's taking the position of an Epicurean and he's actually condemning it. No, he's not. This is a cure. This is a cure and a remedy for looking at God's providence and how do we get through life without it frustrating us? Eat, drink, and be merry. For that shall abide with him of his labor the days of his life, which God giveth him under the sun. You've got to go to work, and you've got to work hard, and you've got to cut the grass, and you've got to paint the house, and you've got to train the children, and you've got to do all these things. Well, what kind of a reward is there? One day at a time, eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy. Because you fear the Lord, you're going to come forth of them all. Everything is going to go well with you. It does not depend upon all your efforts. Don't worry about how the neighbor's getting away with murder. A hundred times over, he's a serial killer, and he's just getting rich. You know, don't worry about any of that. Eat, drink, and be merry. Sit down with your family. Listen, 
you give me one box of saltines. It used to cost 49 cents. I don't know what it costs anymore because there's no food value in there. The cost of the box and distribution is $1.09, so you know that what's inside for 49 cents is not worth eating. But you give me one box of saltines, one stick of butter, I am one happy boy. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. That's called carbohydrate addiction. It doesn't have to be fancy. Do you know what? If there's peace and there's love and there's a family, and all my children know that I just told you the perfect truth. They're embarrassed, but I told you the truth. To have my family sitting around a table, you can eat, drink, and be merry. It does not take an expensive menu. Eat, drink, and be merry. You know, someone's asked me recently, how can you eat, drink, and be merry on the diet that you're following right now? And I said, walking on my deck in the sunshine for five minutes while I eat a plain bratwurst is as good as it gets on this planet. With my wife standing there and my house empty, thank you for going to school all day, son. (laughs) And that big bratwurst, listen, that... That's eat, drink, and be merry. I don't care what's going on with the neighbors. They can be making 10000 or or 100000 a month in the markets, and I couldn't care less. I know the Lord, right. and the Lord knows me, Amen. and I love Him, and He loves me. Amen. And in, I have my little short sessions with the Lord on the back deck, staring into the rising sun of the east, coming in from the east, and tell Him the whole earth is full of your glory. Because the green of the trees that cover my whole back panorama and the blue of the sky and the brightness of the sun and the green of the grass and those tassels on some of the plants that are in the backyard and a bratwurst in your hand and a wife in bed. What else do you want? What else are you looking for? The whole earth is full of your glory. I I love them. I don't care what the neighbors are doing. I don't care who our next president is. I'll still be able to afford a bratwurst from time to time. And I'm not, listen, I just want you to think about what the, how Solomon is telling us to enjoy life. Right. Don't let these circumstances move you. That shall abide with him of his labor the days of his life. You know, I have a, I have five minute session out there with the Lord, a bratwurst and the Lord. I can go back in and tear up for a while because it's a reward for my labor. And you can do it every day. Hey, this diet, I'm, don't, don't, don't call it a diet. Anyway, which God giveth him under the sun. It's his portion that shall abide with him of his labor the days of his life. If you do that every day of your life, it, the labor of your life doesn't accumulate to where it becomes overwhelming. And you say to yourself, what is life all about? Why do I go to work every day? Why do I get up, go to work, work as hard as I can and then when I get to the end of the month, there's hardly any money left over, and I've got to go ahead and do it again the next month. Why do I go through all this? should never think that. You know what you're going through it for? For 30 sessions with a bratwurst on the back deck talking to the Lord. Eat, drink, and be merry. That was remedy number two to God's dealings in providence. Now look at 16 and 17. This lesson's a little different, and I've separated it just so we can have bite-sized chunks. This is the inscrutability of God's providence. No man can know where it's going. I hope I spent enough time on the mirth of verse 15. It is not sinful mirth. 
It is godly mirth. It is holy mirth. It is righteous mirth. It is pleasure, happiness, and gladness in the fear of the Lord with basic pleasures like eating and drinking and being merry. There's no mention here of casual sex or any other sin that the Bible describes. This is not banquetings, gluttony, revelings, and so forth. This is no excess of wine. This is an approved, acceptable amount of wine. Verses 16 and 17, the lesson is the inscrutability of God's providence. If you have not been convinced yet on how you ought to live in the light of God's providence, here's another lesson, you're never going to be able to figure it out if you try. So there's a lesson here, you can't figure it out. Let me read to you verses 16 and 17. When I applied mine heart to know wisdom, and to see the business that is done upon the earth, for also there is that neither day nor night seeth sleep with his eyes, then I beheld all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Because though a man labor to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yea, farther, though a wise man think to know it, yet shall he not be able to find it. This is the inscrutability of God's providence, meaning you cannot plummet depths You cannot figure it out. You do not know what or when God is going to do what he's going to do. Solomon tried his best to figure it out, and he sorted that out that it couldn't be discovered. And he's telling you the lesson. So that when you're looking at all these things, the first rule is, God does good things sometimes to the wicked for his own purposes. Sometimes he does evil things toward the righteous for his own purposes. And you shouldn't worry about it. You should trust the fear of the Lord, and you should eat, drink, and be merry. But here he's telling you, you couldn't figure it out even if you put your whole life into the effort. I applied my heart to know it. I wanted to see the business that's done upon the earth. Verse 17 continues that thought. Forget the parentheses for a moment. Then I beheld all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. I looked at all the providential dealings of God in the world, and I, I couldn't figure it out. And I'm the wise man. I could not figure it out. And if any other man tries to figure it out, by effort, he has two two parts in the second half of verse 17. Though a man labor. Now that means I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to give it all my effort. Though a man labor to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. How about a very intelligent wise man? Yea, farther, though a wise man think to know it. He presumes that he's got so much wisdom that he can sort it out, yet shall he not be able to find it. So it doesn't matter what amount of effort, and it doesn't matter how much wisdom you have, you are not going to be able to sort out what God's about to do in the next one minute. Brother Mark mentioned that this book has come at a very appropriate time in our country, and it has come at a very appropriate time, and there was absolutely no planning on my part for it. The investment markets right now are in such turmoil and there is so much volatility and there is so much money that could be made if by effort or a wise man he could sort out for one day, one day, the ups and downs and the crooked things of a stock graph or or a derivative graph. But you know what? What the Lord makes crooked, you can't make straight. If I knew how for one week... To sort, what, to sort out what God does and to make straight what God makes crooked, all of you would be retired for the rest of your life 
from simply Wachovia stock. How can you be nine last Friday, last Thursday, be 24 on Friday, and be nine two days ago? That kind of volatility is how fortunes are made. But there's one problem. What God makes crooked, and when you have something here at nine that goes to 24 and comes back, that's pretty crooked, wouldn't you say? You ain't going to make it straight. Figure out any place along that where you bought, and I'll tell you that you're poor. The Lord's in charge of all those things. You can't figure it out. So Solomon told us, don't even try. Now, in parentheses, for also there is that neither day nor night seeth sleep with his eyes. Solomon knew there are people that never give up. There's a lot of work that goes behind this, and for those of you that want it, it will be in the outline, and I want you to look for it if you want it. This part in parentheses could be talking about Solomon. It could be talking about rich men who cannot sleep at night because it mentions no sleep. I believe it's talking about a different category of man, and it's referenced under the word, for also there is that. That kind of a man. He uses this kind of terminology in Proverbs several times. There is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword. What he means is there are certain, there's a kind of man, man that speaks harshly with his words. So he's talking about some kind of man. There is that neither day nor night seeth sleep with his eyes. He is through the day and through the night trying to figure out what is going to happen, why it happens, and all the workings of God in providence. These are philosophers. And what Solomon is saying is a philosopher, no matter how much the effort, a philosopher, no matter how much the wisdom, is never going to be able to figure it out, even if he's awake about it day and night. Because I can't, and I'm the preacher. And they can't. There's much more on that, but I hope that's enough so that I can go to chapter 9. Verse, the first three verses. It continues the same thought. We're still talking about God's providence. For all this I considered in my heart, even to declare all this. Thank God that this incredibly wise man that God raised up, not only considered things in his heart, but he declared them to us. He put it down in writing for us. What if he had just kept it in the recesses of his own mind? He declared it to us. He was a preacher. He sought to set in order many profitable things for us, chapter 12 tells us. I'm thankful that God raised up this man and moved him not just to consider these things in his heart, but to pull out a pen and write the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes for us. Right. For all this I considered in my heart even to declare all this, that the righteous... And the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he that sweareth, as he that feareth an oath. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Ah, now it's getting real good. He states the same thing. The same events happen to the righteous and the wicked, and he gives five comparisons of the righteous and the wicked. 
They're called the righteous and the wicked in the first part of verse 2. They're called the good and the clean versus the unclean. They're called him that sacrificeth and him that sacrificeth not. The man that pays and worships God properly according to the law of God and a man who does not. The good and the sinner. There's a good man and there's sinful men. And there's those that swear and those that fear an oath. There are some men that will swear loosely, freely, and frivolously. The Pharisees were known for it. And then there are men that fear making an oath. This is a comparison. Good men versus bad men. Righteous men versus wicked men. And how the same events happen to them all. He's repeating what we've already been over. And it's an evil done under the sun, he tells us in verse 3, that one event happens to them all. And this one event is not one singular event. It's that whatever event you want to pick that happens to the good, that, that same event also happens to the wicked. Because he's talking about all things, verse 2. Not just one thing, but all things. Because whatever event you want to pick, it happens to both righteous and wicked. Pain, trouble, sickness, storms, hurricanes, business failures, business prosperity, get hired, get fired. It all happens to both. And the fools that don't understand God's wisdom, who don't fear the Lord, who don't live one day at a time, who think that it can be found out or that they, they think they have found it out because they see that it makes no difference to fear God, their hearts are set in them to do evil. The heart of the sons of men is full of evil and madness is in their heart. They commit themselves to live any way they want because obviously, look at that guy that's a Christian over there, that goes to work with me, he's no better off than I am. In fact, I got promoted and he didn't. Madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. They miss out on this life in some respects, and they certainly miss out on the next because their life is cut off. I want to go back to verse 1, because there's another remedy there for us in verse 1. The remedies we have had so far, fear the Lord, eat, drink, and be merry, it can never be figured out, so don't even try. You and your works are in the hand of God. For all this I considered in my heart even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. What is before you? The things you can see with your eyes. If it's right in front of you, you can see it with your eyes. These are the things under the sun. If we just look at things before us or things under the sun, you cannot tell who God loves and who God hates. Right. Cannot tell. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. If you, measure, if you take into account everything before you and your neighbor, you can't tell who God loves and who he hates. Do you know, who we, do you know how we know if God loves us or not? This is one way we know it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How about another way? He has put a spirit within my heart that sheds abroad in my heart the love of God for me. It bears witness with my spirit that I am the Son of God, and I cry back to Him, Abba, Father. And yes, I meant that. I do that on my back deck. It faces the east. I don't have sunrise services, but boy, I meet the Lord there, and it's beautiful. He sheds it abroad in my heart. But you know what? None of what I just told you is before us, 
because before us is talking about all the circumstances that affect the righteous and the wicked. This is spiritual discernment through the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. We know God loves us. But if you just look at circumstances, you'll never be able to tell the difference. That's the, that's the confusion. That's the vanity. That's the difficulty. And because the wicked see no favor in their eyes of things before them that happen to the righteous, they believe that they can go on and sin with impunity and get away with it. So they do. They set their hearts to sin. Their hearts are full of madness, which is the insanity of living in sin. And they just rush on in it. Then they're cut off. And they'll give an account of their lives according to chapter 12 and the 14th verse. But what I want is in the middle of that first verse of chapter 9. The wise and the righteous and their works are in the hand of God. This is the fourth remedy. You're in the hand of God. You know that God loves you by the witness he's given you of his spirit. You know God loves you by the witness of his Bible. You know God loves you by the witness of the spiritual things he sends you and the conviction he gives you that he doesn't give the wicked. But those things are not observable with the natural eye. They're spiritually discerned. You know God loves you. And everything you do is in his hand. When you cut the grass and there's no one watching, and it's hard and it's hot, Alex, I hope you cut it once in a while. Don't, don't shake your head no, because I'm going to be hurt. But even when you cut the grass, if you do it as unto the Lord, the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. Every woman that slaves every day and works every day and does things that she never gets a thank you for, the wise and the righteous and their works are in the hand of God. No matter how difficult the situation is that you are in and how fearful you might be and how inadequate you feel you might be toward the task, the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. So much so are you in the hand of God, the Lord Jesus Christ would say, Not a sparrow falls from heaven without your heavenly Father, and ye are of more value than many sparrows, for even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Is that being in the hand of God? If you're in my hand, no man can pluck you out of my Father's hand, and no man can pluck you out of my hand. John chapter 10. But I want to give you my favorite verse on this point about being in the hand of God. And I want to bless the God of heaven for this unique statement in the Bible. Please turn to 1 Samuel 25, and I want you to get excited about this little verse of Scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 25. You know, the Bible tells us that God looks upon men, and those that fear the Lord, wasn't that the first remedy? Those that fear the Lord and speak often to one another, He writes their names in a book of remembrance. That is not the book of life. It's a book of remembrance that when he brings judgment upon men, he'll make a difference between the righteous and the wicked, and they will be his jewels in that day. Malachi chapter 3, 15, 16. Hagar knew that there was a God like this that saw her and cared for her, and she was in his hand. Because when she was cast out by her mistress, Sarah, she fled. She was pregnant. She was lost. She was thirsty. She was out in the middle of the desert. She was an Egyptian. She was not from Abraham's stock. She was deserted by the family. She was pregnant only because her mistress made her go in and sleep with her master. God found her there. And God comforted her and said, I'll take care of you. And she named God a new name. 
Thou God seest me. Amen. She could not believe that the God of Abraham was looking out for her. And he said, go back and I'll take care of you. And from your child, he's going to be a great man. I'm going to make a great nation out of him as well. And the Ishmaelites were rather great. But here's a, here's a better one. Abigail was a beautiful woman and of good understanding. She hears the rumor that her husband, who was a fool, and she knew he was a fool, but she had married a fool, so she was stuck with a fool for ten more days. That's another subject. She knew that David had been offended by this son of Belial, her husband, and he was going to come and kill every male in their estate. And David was on his way, and she saddled up a few asses and took a couple servants and got a bunch of goodies for David and his men. And she went to meet him. And in First Samuel chapter 25, for any woman that wants to be a great woman and know how to influence her husband and love her husband and move her husband when she needs to, First Samuel 25 is an entire chapter dedicated to a woman's wisdom in dealing with a very angry man. Because David was frothing mad. David was going to kill every man in Nabal's entire household. The Bible says there wouldn't be a person left to piss against the wall, and that's something only men can do. That's why that expression is in the Bible. It's just a plain way of talking. Abigail meets him, and she uses a number of ways of reasoning with David to calm him down. Let me share one of those with you. Verse 28, she's begging him not to kill anyone and ruin his reputation. I pray thee, 1 Samuel 25, 28, I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. She knew David was going to have a sure house. And I want you to know that David's son is sitting on his throne at this hour. His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is the son of David. Amen. And he's on David's throne in heaven. Right. My Lord will certainly, the Lord will certainly make my Lord, meaning David, a sure house. Because my Lord, that is David, fighteth the battles of the Lord, that is Jehovah. And evil hath not been found in thee all thy days. You have a spotless reputation, do not ruin it now. Yet a man is risen to pursue thee, that's King Saul. And the enemies, Doeg the Edomite and others that were with him. A man is risen to pursue thee and to seek thy soul. But the soul of my Lord, that is David, shall be bound... In the bundle of life with the Lord thy God and the souls of thine enemies, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. Amen. Bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. Is that one of the sweetest expressions in the Bible of a relationship with God? Amen. Ecclesiastes 9.1, the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. In 1 Samuel 25, 29, you're in the embrace of God. You're bound up in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. And your enemies, they are like they are in a, the middle of a sling, and the centrifugal force is going to throw them far away. Totally contrasted to David. The difference between Saul and David is enormous. The right. difference between Doeg the Edomite and David is enormous. Amen. Here's the expression. This is remedy number four. When you look at all the circumstances of life and you wonder what God is doing, 
you fear the Lord. You eat, drink, and are merry. You realize it can't be figured out, not even if you were Solomon. And you know that your life and your works are in the hand of God. The righteous are going to stand at the right hand of God. They're called the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. The righteous are going to say, we don't deserve to be here. Jesus is going to say, you visited me when I was alone. You fed me when I was hungry. You gave me drink when I was thirsty. You visited me in prison. You clothed me when I was naked. They're going to say, when did we ever do that, Lord? And the Lord's going to say to them, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren... Because the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. He doesn't forget a single thing that they do. Amen. If you don't like 1 Samuel 25, 29, I'm sorry for you, but I like it. Amen. I love 1 Samuel 25, 29. I want to be bound up in the bundle of life with the Lord my God. Amen. David was bound up in that bundle of life with the Lord his God. So though he numbered Israel and 70,000 men lost their lives, though he moved the Ark of the Covenant the wrong way and Uzzah lost his life, though he committed aggravated murder and adultery, though he wasn't a good father with his sons, he was bound up in the bundle of life with the Lord his God. And the Lord was merciful to him and blessed him. And he died a merciful death with his mind and soul and heart full of the everlasting covenant of the Lord his God. Amen. Do you know how comforting that is? Bound up in the bundle of life with the Lord. The Lord's got a bundle. I want to be inside the bundle. It's the bundle of life. Life here and life there. Life on earth and life everlasting. Bound up with the Lord thy God in the bundle of life. God is going to take care of you, David. He's going to make a sure house of you. He's going to protect you and be with you. You do not have to go and defend yourself right now and kill some man unjustifiably. And ruin your spotless reputation. But your enemies, don't worry about them. They're going to get slung like out of the middle of a sling. The centrifugal force of a sling. Can they throw a golf ball a quarter of a mile? And hit a target? Or a bigger than a golf ball, like a cue ball? You know, we think they threw little stones. But we've done some reading and some experimentation with slings. And they, out of the middle of a sling, you can throw it a quarter of a mile. 1,320 feet. What a beautiful verse. What is our remedy for all the circumstances of life? Fear the Lord. Live each day, one day at a time, eating and drinking and being merry with the modest, simple pleasures that God recommends, commends, and allows. Realizing that we can't ever plumb the depths of God's providential moves in our families, in our health, in those around us, and that we're bound up in the bundle of life because the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. Amen. He says that, then he moves on to the wicked. You know, he just gives us these little tastes of being in the hand of God, fearing God, everything's going to go well with the man who fears the Lord. He throws these things at us and then tells us it is a vanity. If you stop from doing those four things and look around, like Asaph did, it messed him up. I was foolish, he said. I was like a brute beast. I shouldn't have been looking at those things. And Solomon here tells us not to. Anyone else in here want to be bound up in the bundle of life with the Lord? Amen. Then love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Walk with Him every day. Love His Word. Hate sin. Enjoy the simple pleasures He gives you. Give thanks to Him for every good thing He's done for you. Choose the paths of righteousness over the paths of wickedness. Take that straight and narrow way instead of the, the broad way that leads to destruction. Love the Lord. Think of what you can do for Him. David was always trying to think of what he could do for the Lord. 
It upset him when he saw that something wasn't being done for the Lord. If, if he saw Goliath blaspheming the God of Israel, he said, is there not a cause? When he looked at the tabernacle and realized it was a tent and he was dwelling in a fixed house, he said, I want to build the Lord a temple. He was constantly thinking that way. And the reward for that kind of a man, bound up in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. I like those close quarters. I want to be in a bundle with the Lord, bound up, and have my enemies slung out like out of the middle of a sling. The righteous and the wise in their works are in the hand of God. And if you're in the hand of God, no one, no man can pluck you out of his hand. No man's going to pluck your works out of his memory. The verse that I've used many times in Ecclesiastes and many times outside, 1 Timothy 6, where Paul told Timothy to exhort the rich not to trust in uncertain riches, but the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they be willing to distribute, ready to communicate those riches to the poor. They didn't have to. They didn't have to distribute all their income to the church so that everybody had equal savings accounts. He said, richly enjoy those things God's given you, but be ready to give it to somebody in need to lay hold of eternal life and lay up in store for yourself a good foundation against the time to come because the works of God are in his hand. If, you, if, if those rich people in 1 Timothy 6 had a willing mind and a ready mind to give away their riches to help poor saints, it would be remembered in the great day of judgment because their works were in his hand. Children, wives, mothers, fathers, all the efforts it takes to do your job, to be a spouse, to be a parent, to be a child. All the things that you face, the troubles that you face, the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. And if you're walking close with God, you're bound up in the bundle of life. And the wicked and the enemies he's going to sling out as out of the middle of a sling. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word for us to deal with the changing circumstances of life. Amen. Amen.